0: I'm 100% cool with if you don't want to do it, but I was thinking of possibly making this my podcast as well. Great. So how do we want to start it? We're just... Hi, my name is Mike Carano, and I am the, in quotes, producer of Paul Ollinger's Crazy Money Podcast. Really, I'm just the editor, but, you know, take credit when you can. He never gets
1: guests, is what he's trying to say. He should be booking... That's
0: right. Or I don't do the interviews. I do the hard part, the meticulously listening to it.
1: Making me sound smart and cutting out my stuttering.
0: So what we're doing this week is I thought I would interview Paul and find out some stuff about him. And even though I've known him for quite a long time, there's a lot of stuff I don't know about him. So we'll give this a shot and see what comes from it. Hopefully it'll be a tear laden, emotional journey.
1: And this is a reciprocal episode for Mike's podcast, Miscellaneous Adventures from the World of Mike Carano.
0: And I don't want to soil your podcast by throwing my podcast in there because mine is really just an exhibition of mental illness. Mine is an exhibition of well-dressed mental illness. Okay. All right. So simply, and we don't need to go too deep into this, but you grew up in Atlanta, right? I did. Okay. So you grew up in Atlanta. You had a bunch of siblings. Your parents stayed married and then you split for college.
1: They stayed married after I split for college until they died. Yeah.
0: Okay. You know how the Amish cut their kids loose? when they're young and they get to go out into the real world and then they have the option of coming back and staying Amish forever or remaining out in the world. Can you relate to that? Like you split from Georgia, you went to New York, Los Angeles, a couple of other places, and then you went back to Georgia with your family. Does that ring a bell for you? Does it feel like you went out and explored the world and then settled down?
1: Well, I didn't know about that custom that the Amish send their kids on a gap year. What do they go to The Mennonites and they hang out with the Mennonites instead of the... I saw
0: a documentary on it and it was horrifying because there's a huge, huge meth problem with the kids. Once they split, they discover alcohol and meth, at least in one particular community, and a lot of them just become addicts. Oh, that's horrible.
1: Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I suppose I went out and explored... I always in my head had Atlanta as my home. I mean, people made fun of me early in my career after college for saying, you know, where's your home? I'd lived in Austin, but I'd say Atlanta. And for a long time, kind of had in my head that someday I'll return. You know, when I finally did, my parents were delighted, but it was 20 years after I graduated from college. So it wasn't like I went away for three years and then came back. It's like I went away, became an adult, and came back. And I suppose if you're going out into the world with all the infidels, who are non-Amish and have things like electricity and phones and entertainment, that's a much bigger commitment to revert to your prehistoric way of living. I don't mean that to sound pejorative of the Amish. They live their life, whatever.
0: Good furniture. Yeah. And, and they're on the cutting edge of buggy development. <laughs> the, uh,
1: so it wasn't like when I came back to Atlanta, I was re-embracing any way of living. It was just like I was back home and, and happy to be near my old friends and near my family.
0: Well, I hate the term sowing your oats, but did you feel like when you first moved to New York, that was just like like a long extended Vegas weekend? Or was it actually, (laughs) like, did you have any intention of staying there? I moved around a lot. So my parents, the thing they have in common with the
1: Amish, my parents were highly religious Catholic people, and we were raised to be Catholics, practicing Catholics. Not everyone in my family still is. Some are, some aren't. But when I left, I mean, I certainly wasn't as adherent to the Catholic church as I had been not through my own choice as a kid through high school. I mean, I went to 12 years of Catholic school. It was very much baked into our life. When I went away to college, I didn't go to church on a regular basis. I wasn't part of a church community. Yeah, I mean, I sowed my oats partly because I wasn't at home anymore and partly because I was 18, 19, 20 years old when I eventually got to New York, which wasn't until 1997, 10 years after I went to college, it was like, it was like the first experience of everybody going to New York. It was like, holy cow, this thing is, it's not just that the bars stay open until five o'clock in the morning. It's that the way you live in New York is a brand new way to live logistically, professionally, you're meeting all these people. It's like people from all over the world there. It's just an exciting place to live. Every time I meet somebody who's 18 or 20, what should I do in my life? Live in New York or London or someplace like that.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about that. I'm sure it formed you as a person living there because it really is this center of excitement and unlike any other place.
1: I just remember walking out the door as a gainfully employed person who had rent paid at least for the next month or two for the first time in my life and like walking out my front door on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and, and feeling like I was walking out into like an amusement park. It's such a highly stimulating place to live that every day is kind of an adventure there.
0: Uh, let's see here. So,
1: Are you going to cut this part out, this little part right here?
0: I believe so. Cut to. <laughs> I really like the part where Paul asked him if he's going to cut this out. and He said he believed so and then he didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> where we try to take credit for editing i've learned from the podcast and from you personally that your dad had a huge role on how you developed as a man yeah
1: if nothing else i look startlingly similar to him with my bald head. that's what i meant i meant aesthetically only <laughs> yeah that's right with my bald head and my big ears <laughs> izzy drew a picture of me the other day and i said oh am i wearing headphones she said no those those are your ears
0: <laughs> which one's worse I'm the kind of guy that goes out with giant headphones on, or I have clown ears. My
1: dad was a true knight, a gallant human being, in only humble ways. He was a really charming, smart person who had enough self-confidence to never have to be the center of attention.
0: Yeah, and I should mention right now, since this is for the Crazy Money Podcast, that if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to the interview that Paul did with his dad. And that interview had a big impact on me because I remember you were questioning whether it was listenable or not after you recorded it. And it's just turned out to be the sweetest thing, man. And I still have that great quote when you were asking him about, did you ever worry about money? He's like, nope, just trust the Lord. I was like, wow, pretty much the polar opposite of every other person that's been on the podcast. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to interview him is
1: because Financial stress was sort of like this subtext in our home growing up. And I told my brother, I was driving my dad back from the hospital maybe five years ago because part of our jobs as older kids was to just take care of him in his final years and drive him to doctor's appointments and all that kind of stuff. And we were just having this conversation about money. And I said, do you think that if you had made like... 25% 25% more money that you would have stressed a little bit less about money. And he was like, I don't ever remember stressing about money. And I almost <laughs> and I almost drove off the road. And I told my brother Cole that, and he was just like, oh my God, I can't believe he yeah. said that. Because we were yeah. both like, and it turns out my dad, he just, I'm not sure how much of this was a 90-year-old rationalizing the way he acted 40 or 50 years mm-hmm. earlier, or how much of it he really felt that way. He just never bought things we never needed, and he shut down conversations about things that he perceived to be luxuries. And we always had plenty to eat. We always had parents around. We played sports. There was nothing we didn't participate in because we didn't have enough money. When my friend moved to the Netherlands when I was in 10th grade, dad found the money to help me. I paid for part of the ticket for like maybe a quarter of it. You know, he's like, "This will be a great experience. You should go to the Netherlands." And he bought the plane ticket. You know, we together bought the plane ticket. Like, so,
0: so I just assumed you implied that you went there to help him move. I was like, "Geez, <laughs> no, I didn't help him." And he gave me this really good beer from the Netherlands, which I guess would be Heineken or Amsterdam or uh, Amstel. And- Heineken.
1: We did go to the Heineken brewery in Amsterdam in 1985, which was a fun day.
0: But yeah, so
1: there was money for the important things, but there was very little in terms of like, you know, we had Pong instead of Atari, and Dad probably could have made the Atari happen. But
0: I've forgotten all about that. Well, when you talked to your dad, you were talking to me about making sure that I tell my parents what I want to tell them before they die, and I'm sure that had a huge influence on me, because the last time I saw my mom, I knew she was going to die. And I didn't treat her how I normally would have, which is just leaving in a fit of anger. I just gave her a hug and a kiss and told her I loved her, and then she died. And I wouldn't have done that if I wouldn't have been thinking about other stuff, you know, that we're working on. And Talking about your dad and how you need to tell your parents you love them and stuff before they're gone kind of had a big impact on me. Kind of. I don't want to give you too much credit.
1: No, that's enormously gratifying. And the episode with my father is the episode that people mention the most when I ask which one they enjoyed the most. It wasn't an easy conversation necessarily, but it was a very natural one. And I'm glad I got that. You know, I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad, oh, it's great. I'm, I'm glad that my kids will be able to hear me talk to my dad.
0: That's kind of incredible. And most people don't have that opportunity.
1: They spent a lot of time with my dad, but, you know, they won't remember the details of who he was in a couple of years.
0: Your wife, Stacy, is adopted.
1: She is.
0: This occurred to me in a very sincere manner, but I, uh, you know, I couldn't stop thinking of stupid jokes after I wrote this down. But she's adopted, and a lot of times you can look at your mate. Husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend, and you can get an idea of what's to come in the future by looking at their mom or dad. And I wondered if that ever crossed your mind while you guys were dating. Like Do you mean, I wanted you to know if she was going to gain a bunch of weight or something. Is that what you're trying <laughs> so, to say? Yeah. Well, yeah, that is what I mean. But I also mean, like, did you think about, like, I should hide the knives for the first couple months?
1: Yeah. Well, no, I've had that experience, and I'm very happy to not have that experience with Stacy. It's interesting because I certainly see, you know, there's the whole nature versus nurture thing. And so I certainly see the nurture thing from her parents, her adopted parents who are her parents. I see that. I see the, the way they've had an effect on who she is and how she engages with the world. But I don't really wonder too much about the genetic makeup. You know, the joke is that because she's got dark skin and dark hair, I thought my kids were Latino when they were born. And so we put mixed race on one of the birth certificates at least. And then it turned out that we did 23 and me and turns out that she's 51% South Asian. And so now they're never going to get into Harvard.
0: (laughs) Have you ever uh, told a story or a joke about her on stage that came back to haunt you?
1: You know, I think at some point she gets tired of being the butt of the joke. In my opinion, she's not the butt of the joke. I think the thing about spouses, and I'm very careful to not be like, hey, my wife, you know, like she, she doesn't yeah. know how to drive. Like the 1970s comic who's, you know, complaining about his wife. I don't want to be that person. I think that a spouse- It never ends up well. Yeah, I mean, those people, they're complaining about their spouses because they're morons and their spouse-
0: Well, it's also eventually when the kids are growing up, they're like, I'm out of here. Bye. I think that telling jokes, Stacey is a perspective
1: through which I can demonstrate what a moron I am in the way I engage with the world, because that's what I think a spouse, I mean, we've been married for 14 years, and before you get married, you know, for 25 or 30 years, you construct this shell around yourself, this self-image of who you are, and it's an image constructed of rationalizations and sort of things that you've convinced yourself are normal, or okay, or even good, and then you see your terrible habits or opinions through the eyes of somebody else. And you're like, but wait, that's exactly how is it supposed to be? And then they go, no, you're a freaking moron.
0: I heard somebody say that they were married so long that they knew their wife and their wife knew all of their secrets and not only their secrets, they knew how they tried to cover them up. Of course. And he said it was complete transparency. And I, I wonder like from your perspective, is that a bonding experience or is that a frightening experience? So you remember the
1: interview I did last week with Pete Davis, the guy who wrote the book yeah. Dedicated? I want to find this one quote. This is the quote that I read to him. That... I
0: remember it because that's why it stuck out in my head when somebody said I've been married 25 years. And... Yeah, yeah,
1: so this is exactly along those lines. The context here, dear listener, is that Pete Davis wrote a book called Dedicated, and he's basically making a case that we have to commit to things. Otherwise, we will spend our lives in the mode of perpetual browsing. Very smart guy. If you haven't listened to the interview, please do. This is a quote from the book. Association forces us, meaning association with people, organizations, whatever, forces us to reveal more of ourselves, to commit alongside other people. Dot, 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 dot. If we want the rewards of being loved, we have to submit to the mortifying ordeal of being known. That's marriage. That's marriage. If you want the rewards of being loved, you have to submit to the mortifying ordeal of being known. And that's written by a guy named Tim Kreider. K-R-E-I-D-E-R. And I just think that sums it up. It's like, she not only knows that I cry at automobile commercials, she knows why I cry at automobile
0: commercials. Wow. That's deep and heavy, and I don't know if I like it. Right. Well, that's the thing.
1: She knows my weaknesses, she knows my terrible habits, yeah. and I know hers. And
0: you, <laughs> you can't use those Things against the other person. Absolutely. I can imagine in a bad relationship that that would be ammunition against the other person all the time because you know exactly how to push those buttons.
1: I mean, that is absolutely forbidden. And that's why I would never tell a joke on stage about her that would reveal any kinds of her weaknesses. I want to reveal my weaknesses, not her weaknesses. I want to talk about things that, that many couples can relate to without saying anything that would get below the skin for her. I can make fun yeah. of her parents. Her parents think it's hilarious when I make fun of them on stage.
0: Oh, that's great. They probably love the attention, too.
1: I'm not going to comment on that.
0: but that, The recognition. I'll say it. The recognition. Of course they do. Absolutely. Of course they do. No,
1: it's fun to be a part of the show as long as it's presented with love.
0: I used to love it when comics would call me out from the stage, even though I pretended like it was embarrassing. Right. It was always fun, even though it was always in a super negative way. <laughs> I walk into Irvine, and Daniel Tosh stops his act and goes, there's Mike Carano, big creep. And I was like, Jesus (laughs) Christ. When I brought up Daniel Tosh, and his
1: first line was, "Uh, that's Paul, God bless him, he's trying. (laughs) (laughs) Proof that Tosh wasn't married to me, because... He hit exactly where it hurt. <laughs> I was not ready for the comedy job I had at the time. And he let every, oh, God. he let everybody know that he knew that I knew that I knew that he knew that.
0: The ugly truth is hilarious, but so uncomfortable all the time, especially when it's coming from somebody that knows how to use it. You can say a lot of things about Tosh. Fearful is not one of them. Oh my God. You know what he did that I thought was absolutely the greatest experience? We had a manager in Irvine. I'm sure you knew him named Warren. And Warren was uh, like to rule with an iron fist. And he was screaming, like very loudly yelling at the staff during a shift meeting about breaking dishes. And he goes, you break a dish, it comes out of your check. And Tosh took a dish and just stood there and dropped it from height, <laughs> from head level and smashed it on the ground. He goes, take it out of my check. <laughs> <laughs> After that. it was like, wow, wow. Oh, that's hilarious. So, you're a stand-up comedian first and foremost. Before I'm a dad, I'm a... No. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you would give up one of your kids to be on Kimmel, right? The dog, maybe. Oh, that's not too shabby. What if that trade could happen?
1: That's probably going to get me in as much trouble.
0: What kind of damage would that do to your kids later on? Then my dad gave up our dog so he could go on Jimmy
1: Kimmel. On some level, they might admire it. Yeah, professionally, my first thing I would say is I'm a comic, yeah. Like, when was the first time you got on stage? My comedy class graduation was,
0: I believe, October of 2001. Okay, before that, why did you want to be a comedian? Who did you see on television or wherever? Okay,
1: so when I was a kid, like for my 12th birthday in 1981, I got one of those AM, FM, TV radios. And the reason I wanted it was so that I could listen to Letterman and Carson after bedtime. And so I would lie in bed with my earphone in, my one earphone, listening to late night shows. And I remember hearing comics and just being blown away. And, but it never occurred to me. I, I was in plays in high school and I thought it was the greatest thing ever. But then I was like, but this isn't a real thing. Real people don't do this. So I went yeah. to college and got a business degree. I was going to college to get a job. That was the role of college in life.
0: It's kind of funny how it sucks you back in because Rich Scheidner got a, a law degree Never practiced. Greg Giraldo was a practicing attorney. Mm-hmm. And so was Al Lubel. Yeah. But they couldn't do it. They wanted to be stand-ups. That was it.
1: Well, I think it's it's becoming more and more with the proliferation of comedians out there. There's more and more people that had normal jobs and just said I want to be a comedian. But so then I went to business school because I wanted to diversify my <laughs> my education. And I was asked to host a talent show and I told jokes. I made fun of my friends for fifteen or twenty minutes. And I just murdered, and it was the greatest experience. It was like, oh, my God, that's what I want to do.
0: How long does that feeling that high after you get off stage last for you? Back then or now? I mean... Now. Do you go home and relive it? It's less and less, but it's also sort
1: of like when you come home from, say, you do two shows and you get home at whatever, 10.30 or 11.30, it's kind of like coming home from work where you're like, your energy hasn't tapered off yet because... Four o'clock, your afternoon peak of your activity happens at nine thirty, ten o'clock at night.
0: Yeah, is that why you do heroin? Nah,
1: it's why I do melatonin and Merlot, so that I'm not up until two o'clock in the morning.
0: Do you remember who you heard on the television back then?
1: I remember David Brenner and didn't think he was hilarious. I mean, Rodney was on all the time. Pryor was on all the time. Steve Martin was my hero. Later in life, Dennis Miller early in his stand-up career doing black and white, I thought yep. he was a magician.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the great specials of all time. I watched it and shared it with a bunch
1: of friends, and I remember this guy was listening to it, a guy I was working with at the time. He's like, when is this going to get funny? And I was like, I'm not going to be friends with this guy.
0: I know. You know what? I was there for those tapings, and it was very tense. But it turned out great, and they shot that entire special on film, actual black-and-white film, so they had film loaders running around, and it was really, really a juggling scene trying to get, you know, because one camera's out of commission for 30 seconds at a time, so they would have to make sure that the other cameras were dead on. Was that not distracting to the audience, them changing that film? I don't remember. I just know the first night, both shows were very discombobulated, and Dennis was kind of freaking out, and then the next night, both shows were fantastic. They were spot on.
1: Was that the Warner Theater? Tempe Improv? Oh, that was improv. the tempe improv yeah he, he yeah. did
0: another one in dc like the next yeah mr miller live from D- washington dc or where
1: he's dressed like david byrne in one of those suits with those big a little, little bit yeah. or those
0: shoulder pads was there comics that blew your mind you never got a chance to see that you wish you would have seen like live like who do you wish you would have seen carlin I'd love to go back
1: into into like 1978, 79 and go to the comedy store and see Pryor in his prime on some Wednesday night. You know, I can't say I'm like a Catskills guy or anything like that, but it's the people that I'd love to see Carlin when he was just, you know, in that stretch of like three or four specials in the, in the eighties where, you know, he is entered the Pantheon and changing the game. I would love to have seen Dennis Miller at that time. I would love to have seen Bill Hicks. I'm not like a huge comedy purist. I sort of like what I like and my taste probably isn't as broad or as deep as a lot of people's.
0: Well, the reason I'm asking is because I bought this very expensive recorder in the 80s. Like it was $400. I'm like, I have to have this. It was the very, very beginning of my having to buy everything. And I still have it. It's sitting like 10 feet away from me. And the only thing I ever recorded on it was I put the microphone in front of the TV in my room and recorded Richard Jenny's first tonight show and it changed my life. Really. I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. I thought it was the funniest thing. I probably listened to it over 100 times. And then next thing you know, I know him. Yeah. And it was yeah. it was surreal. It was a weird freak. I, I don't think I ever told him that, but I just remember going, this is this you're probably the whole reason why I ever looked in the window of the improv in the, in the beginning. It was him and Shamling. And Shamling was solely from late night TV. But I wondered who was, you already said Carlin. Did you work with Brenner when he was doing no, I've never, the improvs? I've never
1: met him. I've never met him.
0: I worked with Richard
1: Jenny though. In fact, he came to town. He had a very specific way he wanted to work. Willie, that guy, would do like 10 minutes up front. And then yeah. Richard would do 80 minutes. When I was forced on the improvs of Orange County as the resident host, I would be the host. And like Dan Godfrey would have to tell the, the general manager would have to tell Richard Jenny that we have this host and he's going to do 10 or 15 up front. He didn't like that one bit. And so oh. on the second weekend, the second or third weekend, I worked with <laughs> This is with the them. one
0: set. This is making my stomach hurt for this you. This is
1: the second or third week. And it go, this goes back to the Daniel Tosh comment, right? So I got that gig after I had done maybe, I swear to God, Mike, 25 sets of comedy. Wow. I somehow fall into this gig of being the host
0: at the Irvine and and Bray Props, and probably the second or third most prestigious club in the country
1: everybody goes through there I'm sure the comics in LA are like who the fuck is this guy why can't I get a spot out here and this moron who isn't even good and I just didn't have the experience to do that gig I'd be pretty good at it now but do
0: you really want to hang out there for five hours to do two 15-minute sets
1: you know, look, it's the value of hanging out in this business is that's not the worst transaction in the world. Anyway. So the second or third weekend that Richard Jenny's, he throws me off his show. He's like, well, I'm not doing this. You're not on the show. I remember standing like near the bar at, I think it was Irvine. And he said, you're a really funny guy, but you know, which he didn't mean by the way, I don't blame him. And he goes, it's not going to work for me. It's not how I work. And so I went back into the room, grabbed my computer bag and left you know, and I was like, "Oh, okay, that's how it feels to get thrown off a show by Richard Jenny." And the next time I heard about him was when he killed himself. It was like two months later. So it is weird. It's totally weird. Like in comedy, where it's kind of like in golf—you play the same golf course, not from the same tees, not with the same conditions, but you play the same golf course. The pros play. You can go do that. And like in comedy, the amateurs are on the same stage as there's an open mic the night before the headliner comes to town and you're playing on the same stage. It's not the same game, but it's like, and all of a sudden you're opening for Kevin Nealon and David Tell and Roseanne Barr and Bobby Slayton and all these people. It was a complete rush. It's a crazy experience. Yeah.
0: It was fantastic. Was there one or more than one of those folks that you opened for that had a big influence on you? You know, I remember Bobby Slayton
1: asking me one night, he goes, so uh, besides Dennis Miller, who are you trying to be? (laughs) 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 <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> and bobby bobby was like really nice to me he was like super nice to me i really liked bobby i loved working with kevin nealon but the guy who i think i liked to watch the most was a tell yes oh i was gonna say norm oh norm was norm was fantastic too and the first yeah. time i the first time i introduced norm mcdonald i said you know him from saturday night live and celebrity poker matchup and he walks up on stage and goes, SNL to the Celebrity Poker Match. And he's like, boy, you can tell which direction my career is headed, can't you? you know, it was like, and I was like, man, I'm so sorry after the show. He's like, no, do it again. Well, I like that. It was a good, good joke, I could tell.
0: I'm glad you brought up Patel because I wondered from your perspective, hypothetically, let's just say the family didn't come into play Yeah, and you were a single guy. Is that a dream to be in New York and just do four or five sets a night? You know what I mean? Like tell is re- so respected and he just goes from club to club seven nights a week. So he's basically getting an hour and a half in every night in the city he lives and gets to go home. Is that a fantasy? Well, it's not a fantasy
1: anymore. I mean, I'm committed to my family first and foremost. And the idea of living in New York is tantalizing, but it's not something I want to do. If I didn't have a family, I'd be in New York for sure. yeah 20 years ago, maybe it would be. No, if I didn't have a family, I would be in New York period would you really yeah for sure but that's not the most important thing to me and you don't have to be in new york you have to go to new york and i need to figure out a way COVID screwed the whole thing up bigger tragedies fell a lot of other people but had pretty decent momentum at the end of 2019 COVID happens i got to kind of restart all over with clubs in new york with you know other club national clubs that i've been past at. and so you want to be like right now mark norman joe list guys like that who can get up at any club in new york and you know can get booked on the road so you have that combination of road work and then when you're at home you're doing four or five 15 minute sets around the city and you're just getting dialed in you are getting forged as a comedian in a way you just can't do when you're getting in four or five sets yeah and then when you split you
0: go to like you know, it's no
1: picnic. Making a living in this business is brutally difficult, and there's nobody making a living who isn't hustling their ass off. Look at like yeah. Andrew Schulz or Sam Morril; these guys, they are a hundred percent committed. They are grinding it out all the time. They are writing new jokes all the time. They have a camera filming every single set that they do, which is how they've built their social media followings. Which is how they're building you know, like getting booked more and more is because so many people want to come out and see him because they know them. And that is, dude, that is a very hard thing to do.
0: The grind, the wear and tear of being on the road obviously showed, you know, the ugly side with Richard Jenny, because there was a point where he was calling our book, the improv's booker and saying, I can't do this anymore. I can't get on a plane on Tuesday and come home Sunday. He goes, I just can't do it.
1: Well, he didn't have to, he probably could have done, if he wanted to make less money, I don't know all the ins and outs of it and the club might say a lot different thing. And it's different now than it was back then, because like if Richard Jenny did six shows in a 300 seat theater in Irvine or Cleveland or suburban Dallas, he could go there and sell 1500 tickets to some venue theoretically today using social media where before he needed the club system to get him out there, he could have worked half as much and made the same amount of money, but he's a great point. Like, he didn't become Jerry Seinfeld, and that ate at him every single day mm-hmm. of his of his life.
0: Well, that seems to be a through line with most comics. Even the comics that are hyper successful, they look at the next guy and they're like, well, I don't have what he has. And
1: But that's exactly what the podcast is all about. It's like there's no end to our jealousy or to our appetite to be as rich or as successful as the next person. And I think that any one of these comics has to find a place. And it used to be, well, I'll go and get a sitcom and I'll be able to live a normal life, you know, live in LA and work nine to five. And then I'll do a couple of sets on the weekend and I'll make a million bucks a year or two or three million or whatever it is. And that doesn't really exist that way anymore. But with technology and social media, there's different ways to make a living that comedians can do. Like, because at a certain point, if you don't become again, or if you don't become a Tosh, where you can kind of write your own ticket, Burt Kreischer, you know, fill in the blank, Tom Segura, it's a terrible way to live. Who wants to be on the road 40 weeks a year, hoping you sell 400 tickets for a weekend and walking out of there with a, you know, $1,200 check. That's not a good way to live.
0: No, but it's fun when you're young and you're just drinking and you're having fun and you're meeting girls and you're in a different city every single day. You know, I just did that tour with Collective
1: Soul and Sticks, and it's like living on a bus is fun for 10 days. I can't imagine. It's
0: fun when you're 20. I can't It's fun, it's fun when you're yeah. 20 if you did it for six yeah. months, but like it's not healthy. I'm glad you brought up people wanting to climb to the next level and always having this hunger. In the comedy world, it's definitely pervasive because of a lot of broken people. And yeah. I know your podcast is about that specifically and it's one of the things that I've had to come to a realization about or reconcile with, which is the stuff or more or competing with other people is nothing but misery. But how do you genuinely, from your perspective, get that through your head? And I know you have bouts of that too at times because I, I know stuff will not make me happy and I've bought a lot of stuff. And it, it stopped filling that hole a long time ago. And I still, on occasion, will look at stuff and go, but that thing will.
1: Whenever I find myself thinking, I want the next level of affluence. I want the next level of a material thing. Stacey and I, we were at a charity auction a few years back. And we bought a weekend at Yellowstone Club. And I had never heard of Yellowstone Club. I was like, where is this place? Why are we doing it? It's in Big Sky, Montana. It's incredible. You'll love it, whatever. I'm like, this is like so expensive. Anyway, we did it. And we went out there, and I was like, holy shit, this is the greatest place I've ever been in my life. And it's dazzlingly beautiful in the woods in Montana. The homes are beautiful. The facilities are ridiculous. And everybody who belongs there is a name that you would recognize or somebody that's worth million, maybe 50 It's this level of affluence that I never really got my head around. I thought being rich meant sending your kids to private school and belonging to a country club and driving, like, nice cars. And then you go and you see this, and you go, oh, well, we could possibly justify buying a home here, but it's so hard to get to. And they're like, no, just fly your jet here. It's easy. Like, literally, when you check in, it says, you know, on the form, it says, what's your tail number? And I was like, what the hell is that? And Uh, 10? In my
0: fantasy world? 8? Yeah.
1: yeah. In reality? As much tail as possible. (laughs) It's like, it's one of those places, and you're like, oh, there's this whole other level of money called airplane money that I didn't know existed. And I'm like, people I know live like that, and it's just they're normal. And my normal is way higher than it used to be and way higher than a lot of people's normal. And so when I find myself thinking, gee, I really want that, I say, well, what am I willing to sacrifice to get that? Mm -hmm. Would I go back to work to get that? No, I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. I'm not doing it at the level I want to be doing it, but I'm doing exactly the kinds of things I want to be doing. And so- Yeah,
0: that's great to hear you say that, because that's really, I know you, you want to make money and stuff. Yeah, I do want to make more money, but... You want the sense of satisfaction that it's generating money validates your work. I think the money is sort of like, okay, I'm not wasting
1: my time. I'm on the right path. I'm getting better. People appreciate what I'm doing. And we're conditioned from the earliest years in school. You get an A, you get a star, you get voted class president, whatever. All those things are external validation that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're playing by the rules and you're playing at a high level that goes all the way through corporate America. Like nobody's business. I'm making more money. I got a raise. I got a promotion. And at a certain point, if you stop playing the game by those, by those metrics, you can start to weird yourself out because you're like, how do I know if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing? And only you can answer that. And it took me a long time to give myself permission to say, I'm, judging myself by how I feel inside. I'm judging the value of my day if I did something interesting and worthwhile. And the podcast, look, we're not making money on the podcast, but I look at all the wonderful people I've met and talked yeah. to. Well,
0: frankly, it's costing you a lot of money.
1: Yeah. It's it's a negative monetization strategy and I'm scaling it. <laughs> I wouldn't have met all these amazing people that I've met. I wouldn't be able to talk to them for an hour at a time. And as interestingly. I wouldn't be in touch with friends from high school who reach out and said, this conversation you had with so-and-so was meaningful to me and I appreciate it. That's psychic income. And that means something to me. Now I'd like to see the numbers be 10 times what they are right now, but guess what? As soon as they're 10 times what they are right now, I'm going to be like, I think I still need them to be double. It's never going to stop ever. And so and I'm not perfect at this, but I'm trying to judge myself based on the value of what I do and how I feel about what I'm doing. I feel like I'm doing pretty well on that level right now.
0: Yeah. I want to ask you, there's three things just popped into my head about the podcast. One is there is a group of people in the, not just the comedy world, but just in general, I interpret it as just bitterness that are that can't miss an opportunity to snipe at somebody who has a podcast with a, (laughs) I'm friends with these people that'll post, I will not do your podcast. They think it's a joke, but I just interpret that as the most petty, bitter, like jealousy. And I wonder if that's something that ever crept into your mind. Like, oh, I'm doing a podcast from my house. Is this a real thing? Like, does that ever cross your mind? You know, you can see the
1: numbers, you can piece together the numbers by looking at the analytics on Apple and on Spotify and on a few other places. And the way I think about it is I, is I have a small, I have like a local radio show. It's just mm-hmm. that the audience is dispersed across the country, concentrated in the Southeast, but across the country and a few people around the world. And it's not what binds us together isn't the strength of the signal in terms of like it's only a local geography. It's a mindset or it's it's an interest that I want to hear the points of view of these people that Paul is curating for me. And that's been really cool to create that. I mean, like I said, I want to do it at a – I think I need to just kind of pull the gloves off a little bit more and just sort of say what I believe. There's so much choice out there. That you've got to have a real point of view, or you're kind of no more interesting than any of the other, I don't know, the top 5% of the 2 million podcasts that are out there.
0: Yeah. I had a friend tell me she loves the podcast. It's too heavy for me to listen to <laughs> in the back. Well, she did. It's like listening to a college lecture sometimes. She goes, because it gets heavy and you don't want to miss it. And you want to hear what somebody says. And she goes, most of my podcasts are just on in the background. And I was like, wow, we're stuck in a weird dilemma with the show because of that. I would
1: never want it to be background noise. And, you know, I hear people, I listen to other podcasts and I go, I know what we're doing is better than this. I know what we're doing has more value. That's not necessarily what people want to hear. I mean, I think that we, maybe we start to say like, look, this isn't for everybody that this is, we're going to get into some stuff here. And This is for smart people. This is for people that want to pay attention. This is for people who want to learn. I
0: dig that, man. I like that approach. I really do because it's definitely not the kind of podcast you're going to put on in five minutes in your... You know what? Now I have another question. As a comic, your inclination is to be funny. And the show does not present that as much because you're dealing with some pretty heavy people. I wonder if that eats away at you that you can't just crack wise throughout the entire show when you're talking to a professor from harvard or well i think you can i just i think it's harder to do on zoom and so like if you go back and listen
1: to the interview i did with professor angus deaton sir angus deaton we did that in his office in princeton in september of 2019 i believe pre-covid and there's a lot more natural give and take with him than there has been with a lot of people over Zoom. And there's just that delay. And you know, I did an interview with a friend of mine for his podcast in my basement yesterday. It was just a natural conversation. This is more of a conversation because you and I know each other so well, but it's not the same as it would be if we were sitting in the same room. It's just not. I have kind of like two speeds, funny and serious. Ed from Collective Solo, I've spent a little time with playing golf and hanging out with our families. He's gotten to know me pretty decently well. He's like, you're more relaxed on stage than you are off stage. I was like, oh, wow, I must be a drag offstage. You're <laughs> <laughs> just a bundle of annoying nerves yeah, stage. And, and my mom used to say, you need to develop your silly side. And I'm like, well, maybe you shouldn't have raised me in a church that told me I was going to go to hell for touching myself. Mm-hmm. Maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe exactly. I'm worried about an eternal damnation. Maybe, that saw, maybe, that saw, side. maybe that's on my mind, mom. Do you ever think of that? So I think I I can get pretty serious pretty quickly.
0: I don't even mean to imply that you're being serious. I'm just saying that if I were talking to an Angus Deaton or somebody like that and I'd want to make a joke, I would be so bummed that I couldn't make the joke.
1: I think you can make a joke. And I think a lot of these people have much better senses of humor than a lot of their platforms allow them to be. Angus... Sir Angus was well. He had a great sense of humor, delightful, right? And he was the kind of guy. Yeah. And, and even Peter Singer, the philosopher at Princeton, who I interviewed a couple hours before I interviewed Sir Angus, you know, he was a little bit more serious, but he definitely had a sense of humor. He had kind of like a dark sense of humor, and he called me primitive, and I thought that was the most
0: yeah. That was that was fantastic. Let's let's talk about that for one second. So the show starts. And pretty early on, you got those two. Now, I know they're not celebrities, but in their fields, they're about as big as it gets. As a philosopher, and they're both at Princeton, they are heavy, heavy, heavyweights in their fields. And you got to interview both of them on the same day. What was going through your mind when you were on the Princeton campus? Were you nervous? Were you freaking out? Were you just like, I don't understand.
1: How how did it come to this? Well, it was, you know, okay, so Dr. Drew, your friend, agreed to do one of the first episodes we recorded dr drew and jessica ma i think in the same day and so i then reached out to ron Lieber at the new york times for my fourth episode we had anna david your friend who i think we recorded the day after dr drew or something like that so my first five episodes or and then my third episode was Tony duff and so in my first five episodes i had the ceo of a startup company woman was worth 100 million dollars dr drew a well-known broadcaster And two New York Times bestsellers and a New York Times bestseller who is a columnist of the New York Times. And then Ed Roland did a show
0: and then you did a show. So there you go. So first, in the first six episodes I had. Can I just state for the record that when you titled my show 52 and broke, that didn't hurt my feelings at all. We speak very frankly about this stuff. I know. just want to get that off my chest. It didn't hurt your feelings. I'm going to go back and retitle it. I'm I'm coming back, baby. (laughs) So first of all, I think I
1: started getting good guests because I had good guests. I was very blessed to have good guests. I can email these guys and say, this is my background. This is who I've had on my show. And pretty early on, I had a little bit of credibility for booking. And then when I'm walking around the Princeton campus, I had done my reading. What I do for this podcast is very different than the way I approached my college courses, which is I actually read the book before I show up for class And they know it too. The guests know it. And I'm prepared and I'm excited to talk to these people about their incredible ideas. And so when I was sitting there talking to Professor Deaton and Professor Singer, my desire was, I want you to know that I care about what you had to write and that I care enough to prepare thoroughly for this interview because I appreciate you lending me an hour of your time. That's how I feel. That's how I approach almost every interview.
0: Did you ever think you'll be walking onto the Princeton campus with a bag full of microphones and a little recorder, talking to two guys that are one guy is considered to be the premier philosopher, the New Yorker, and called him the, the, the
1: world's most influential living philosopher.
0: Both of those guys are two of the big wigs at a big wig university. It's not like you're talking. But to you know what? I don't think. The they, I,
1: I think that the, one of the things I've learned this way is that a lot of big wigs they don't feel that way, especially academics and authors authors have a big pop and I'm not talking about like the biggest authors in the world. I'm talking about like one step down. They release a book. It's really busy for three months and then the phone stops ringing. So you call them five or six months later and you're like, Hey, I read your book. I really liked it. Do you want to talk? They're generally like, I put three years of my life into this book. Yeah. I want to talk about it. And so there's only so many outlets for people who are like, you know, it's like NPR and then, you know, this and that and this and that. And it's like, Hey, I have a legitimate audience, not huge, but a legitimate audience. Here's who I've talked to. I'm going to do my best to make you look good. They're generally open to talking. I just interviewed Andrew Sullivan, who is the youngest editor of the New Republic 20 years ago or whatever it was. He's a very influential, pretty controversial journalist that I've been reading and just fascinated by. I got the chance to talk to him. He's going to come out in two weeks. I'm so excited about that. So the podcast has been a conduit to meeting people and conversations that I couldn't have imagined having two and a half years ago. And guess who made me do the podcast?
0: You did. You're to blame. Any of your material come from the podcast that you do on stage? No. And, you know, with COVID,
1: I did maybe 20 shows in 2020. I haven't developed more stuff around money, but I feel like these two things need to come together into one voice better than they have.
0: The podcast, from my perspective, came about because you were talking about writing the book about how not to raise rich children. And I am fascinated by this whole entire thing, the money happiness thing, because we all still think once I have this, then I'll have that. And we know it's not true, but it's very difficult for that to sink into our thick skulls especially me as a slow learner. I wonder if all of this experience you've had with the podcast, if you knew all of this information, if you had already spoken with all of these people and you were starting the podcast today, would you veer away from the money topic and keep it more about peace of mind or, or staying in the middle or responsibility, or is there anything that comes to mind for you? I wondered if you would do it differently than, than we did it.
1: I think the only thing I would do differently is choose a different name choose a name that's more descriptive for people who are browsing and want to call it something like money and the meaning of life or something like that. But as you and I you know, discussed, you don't know when you start writing a book, when you start recording a record, when you start a podcast or start writing a show, you don't know what it's going to turn into. You think you know, but you don't know. And then the things that just keep coming up, the ideas that I kept coming back to had to do with money and the meaning of life. And it's somewhere money, happiness, work, and meaning. And so that's the kinds of guests that I've had on, and those are the things that I just find to be really interesting. And there's a lot of people who are 40, 45, 50 who have achieved a certain level of success that have reached out to me to be like, what the hell do I do now? A couple of weeks ago, we had Laura Carstensen on from the Stanford Longevity Center, and she talks about how one of the reasons we're starting to feel this way in middle age is because we're expected to live to 75, 80, 85, before when you were looking at your life ending at 68 years old at 52 you weren't thinking what do i do next you were like how do i hold on for dear life you know yeah. or or your body was breaking down at 52 so you're like how do i just make it to retirement age since like 1900 our life expectancy's gone from like 45 to 78 80 for like newborns right now but the structure of our education and career remains the same you go to school till you're 22 25 26 whatever and then you go work for 40 years, and then you're supposed to just walk away and curl up and make gingerbread cookies and then start drinking at noon or something. That's that's how you... Logan's
0: run, baby. <laughs> that's right.
1: Bring it back. I think the thing I would do differently is title it differently so that people knew what to expect when they saw the title and be like, oh, what's that about? As if, like You see Crazy Money, and you're like, I have no idea what that means. The one podcast we've talked about that I think is the best title is The Hilarious World of Depression, which you hear that mm-hmm. title and you're like that might not be for you but you've got a pretty good idea of what it's about
0: when did being healthy become part of your uh, thought process like when did that because that hasn't happened for me yet and i hear people my no but i hear people my age all the time go everything's cool now i'm just worried about my health well i, I think and i'm like when does that
1: click in I, i've been pretty physically active for my entire adult life my eating improved somewhere in my late 20s, early 30s. Not that I eat terribly
0: well now, but I eat reasonably well. But where did that come from? Where was that instilled in your head to care for your body? and to- v- Vanity. I wanted to look. Oh, really?
1: Yes. 100%. Later, though, it starts to be like, okay, I was diagnosed with heart disease seven or eight years ago. A buddy of mine died of a heart attack. There's these things called these calcium tests that I had heard about. So my blood pressure had always been good. My cholesterol had always been within range. And this guy died and had no symptoms. So I was like, I should probably go get one of those calcium scores. And I went and I got the test done. And I hadn't gotten, they said, we can only send these test results to your doctor. And I hadn't seen a doctor here yet. I'd moved back to Atlanta. So it was probably like eight years ago. And I didn't see him for a year. And then I had to go to London. And I wanted to get some Ambien for the trip. So I made an appointment for a physical and I said, hey, while I'm in there, could you guys go see those test scores that I had from like a year ago? And they said, sure, we'll talk about them. See you next week. I got a call an hour later. And they said, you need to come in tomorrow to see the doctor because I was, like in the oh ninth, my God. I was like in the 99th percentile. for. What was your thought, I'm coming in today? <laughs> well, my thought was I wasn't that freaked out, but once they sort of diagnosed me, I was like, all right, let's fix this now. Let's go. Let's get me on the statin. Let's do this. And they're like, hold on. What you've just entered into is a lifelong management of cardiovascular disease. You're not going to, this isn't a fix that's going to happen today. We're not going to put a stent in. You just need to, start eating better you need to take a statin to lower your cholesterol to lower its buildup over the next several decades so you don't die of a heart attack on the golf course
0: oh that's the saddest way to die on a golf course i don't know man i mean well it's not like you're running i missed a two-foot putt and i cursed the lord and then he
1: (laughs) and he smote me anyway so i've been heart conscious for about eight years in tune more with health than with like i want to be skinny so girls think i'm cute
0: Women. But you do want women to be skinny, so women. women think you're cute. Women. Right? Yeah, not girls. Yeah. I just want to say that I'm glad we're doing this because I'd like to put up some fresh content as much as possible.
1: On my podcast or on your podcast? Yeah, on your podcast. What do you mean by fresh content, meaning we were going to skip this week because I've been busy? Yes. Here's the good news. I think the next three are very good. I've already recorded the episode with Andrew Sullivan, which I'm extremely excited about. Oliver Berkman formerly of, I believe, the Guardian and the author of the book, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand. I can't remember the full name of it. Anyway, really funny English writer who now lives in, in Brooklyn. Really looking forward to that conversation. And Charlie Whelan, who's a Dartmouth economist. All those coming up in the next few weeks. I
0: think it's great. When I look at the back catalog of all the shows you've recorded, I think, I mean this sincerely, you should be very, very proud of what you've done. Thanks. I am. It's friggin' solid, man. It's really, really solid, the whole thing. Thank you. I mean, my episode's a little shifty, but (laughs) we also recorded that in a restaurant and a hotel, right? I think we were just, we were doing like- Mic tests.
1: Doing mic tests in that booth in the hotel.
0: Well, thanks for doing this.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you for being the interviewer for this week's Crazy Money.
0: I'm proud of it. All
1: right, man. Good to talk to you.